If you have your Bibles, if you could open to 1 Timothy, uh, we're going to pick up again from 1 Timothy and we'll pick up from verse 12. So if you've got your Bibles or you've got an app, uh, open that up to, to 1 Timothy. We're at, it's near the back of the New Testament. If you have uh, the old-fashioned Bible, uh, you can page near to the back. Um, give you a little bit of a background to 1 Timothy. What's been happening over there is the Apostle Paul, who's wrote most of the New Testament, he's writing to this young man, Timothy. Timothy's about 30 or 35, um, and uh, he's uh, been charged by Paul to go and uh, lead this church in a city called Ephesus and uh, to establish a plumb line for the city, uh, for this church. In other words, uh, there were those who were um, teaching in the church and those who were teaching in the city, which were contrary to sound doctrine. And Paul says, I want you to go there. I want you to uh, straighten things out. I want you to make sure that the, the gospel doctrine that is preached is, is right and correct and godly and biblical. I want you to establish the right kind of leadership. I want you to establish the right kind of worship. I want people to relate to each other in the right way uh, in, this, in this church. Um, so I want you to establish a plumb line that everything else is going to get measured on from there. Timothy is, uh, is dear to Paul, and, uh, and Paul refers to Timothy as his, his dear son. Uh, he talks about him as my dear son in the faith, my dear child in the faith. Um, and, and he only refers to Timothy like that, no, no others. So this, is, this is something that's really important uh, to Paul as he, as he talks to Timothy. The first little portion of Timothy is his, uh, in the first part of chapter 1. He's, he said to Timothy, Timothy, this is what I want you to do. I want you to watch out for people who are preaching lies. I also want you to watch out for people who are preaching stories um, and leading to speculation, all right? Half-truths, quarrels, uh, those kind of things. Because what I want you to do is I want you to come back to actually what God's Word is. I want, you to, I want you to bring those people back to what sound doctrine is, sound gospel, sound theology. And I don't want people to be caught up by all these extra little teachings that come, come in and come out. When we look at this... Uh, Paul then goes on and he says, uh, let me tell you about the law. And he says the law is bad if you don't apply it right. It's good if you apply it well. And, uh, and he says, hey, this is how the law should be applied. The law, the Ten Commandments, they should be applied to lead you to Jesus. If you're applying the law to your life, basically, Paul is saying, if you're applying the law to your life, if you think you're a good person because you can keep seven of the ten, um, you don't get a 70% when you go to heaven, right? God doesn't go like, well, that's brilliant. You just got a B, you know? Um, or, and then there's others who get an A, and then there's like suburbs in heaven. You know, there's the A, the A group, the A plus group, the Bs, the Cs, the Ds, then like there's Es, like way down. You miss halfway, and you, you've like got a place in hell, you know? It, that's not how God works. You see, what Paul's trying to show you is this, is that you break one, you've broken them all. You break one, you failed it, okay? And he says, if you, if you try to consider your standing with God based on the law, Apart from Jesus, you've applied the law badly to your life. That's a bad application of, of the law. A good application of the law is, I can't keep this. I need someone to help me. And when you reflect your gaze on Christ to help you, you've just applied the law well. Here's a modern example on that one over there. If you're climbing um, a cliff face, um, when, when we used to climb in Cape Town, it's a bit more than... East London. East London doesn't have cliff faces. We've got river gorges that we climb up over here. But you'd reach a point sometimes after climbing for hours, and, uh, and you're on the side of the rock, and, uh, and what happens is your forearms start pulsing and shaking because you can't hang on to the rock anymore, 
And so what you have to do is you have to release the, the hold that you've got and, and kind of get your weight onto your feet. Okay? So they always say when you're climbing, look for a foothold. Look for a place to put your feet because your legs are stronger than your arms. So, so you're holding in. But after you've been climbing for a long time and if you're standing on your toes, what starts happening is your legs start to shake. All right? They really do. And then like your arms are not shaking, but your legs are shaking. So then you transfer to your hands. Oh, and you're like, okay, that's great. My legs are fine. Then your arms start shaking. And after a while, everything's shaking. And at that point, you call out to the person below and you go, falling. And they pull the slack into the rope and you fall back and they catch you. Theoretically, right? <laughs> they catch you. What Paul's saying is this. You're holding on to the law and you're kind of doing okay. You're like, I'm all right. Keep five out of ten. Five out of ten, six. Oh, I'm keeping four out of ten. Transfer three out of ten. Transfer. Ooh, okay. All right. Now, okay. I'm keeping five out of ten now. You're not transferred your weight. I'm keeping five. I'm keeping six. I'm keeping seven out of ten. Seven. Ah, six. Five. He goes, This is what you do. You fall back and you go, Jesus, I need you. And you allow Jesus to pick up the slack, to hold you in a position. Either you can keep yourself in right standing with God, in which case you can't do it, or. You let go and you let Jesus be the one with the rope to hold you in right standing with God. Does that make sense? Paul closes this out by listing a number of sins. Like one of them is just, I, mean, I hope none of you have done this. Those who beat their parents. I hope none of you have beaten your parents today, like as you came here. Liars, sexually immoral. He lists this. And the temptation for those who have been Christians for a long time is to read the list and go, well, didn't do that one, haven't done that, haven't done that, I'm pretty good. No, don't do that like so-and-so. Enslaver. Mm, can't remember the last time I put somebody into slavery, except when I bought those Nike shoes of mine, that slaves are busy making. No, not Nike. I'm not saying anything about Nike. In case some, someone hears that, we can take that out of the message. Perjurers. No, I haven't been in court, so I didn't lie under oath. I'm pretty good. That's where it leads most of us. Do you know where it leads Paul? It leads Paul into verse 12 through to verse 17, which is where we're going to be today. This is where he considers that intersection where Christ met him and the change that happened in his life since he met Jesus. Today, here in this building, there are those who met Christ a long time ago. And my prayer is that today, as we reflect on this passage, you too would reflect back to the intersection where your life and Christ met, and you'll remember from what Christ saved you. For some of you, you're exploring the claims of Jesus, and uh, you, you perhaps have been coming to Sterling a while. Maybe Sterling's just one of the many churches that you've been trying because you've been, you've been exploring who Jesus is and trying to see if this is true. Some of you got dragged here, all right, just straight out. You're like, you don't want to be here. You got dragged here. Um, but that's okay, too, because... Uh, you know, maybe God wants to talk to you too. So let's bow our heads. I'm going to pray, and then we take a look at God's Word, all right? Father, this morning as we look at your Word, we want to hear from you. We pray, God, that you would speak to us, speak to us clearly. God, we ask you that uh, you would remind those of us who um, have known you for a period of time, you'd remind us uh, of what our lives were like before we knew you or what our lives could have been like had we not met you. And that, uh, Lord, you would... Uh, um, remind us of your greatness. For those of us, Lord, who are exploring you still, we thank you for your patience with us and 
pray, Lord, that today you would uh, just take us one step further on our journey of knowing you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you have your Bible, uh, you can turn to uh, 1 Timothy. Otherwise, you can follow from the screen. This is where we go. 1 Timothy 12 and se- uh, chapter 1, verse 12 and verse 17. Imagine it's like a sandwich, okay? So you've got a piece of bread at the top, that's verse 12. Another piece of bread at the bottom, that's verse, that's verse 17. Both of them have to do with praise. Verse 12 starts out by saying, I thank him who has given me strength. Verse 17 breaks out into this doxology of prayer um, and worship to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Bang. It's huge. Then inside that, you've got the sandwich. Two other slices of bread in there. Here's another one. Verse 13, but I received mercy. And then again, verse 16, but I received mercy again. Okay, so you've got these four slices of bread, and in that you've got the meat of what's going on. So verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength. It starts out here, Jesus is the one who gave me strength. I couldn't hold on in my own strength. He gave me strength. I thank him who gave me strength. Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful. And I want you to just see that word faithful. Faithful, then drop down a little bit, and you'll see unbelief just before verse 14. Drop underneath that, you see faith again. Drop underneath that, you see trustworthy again over there. Uh, Drop down again to the end of verse 16. A couple of words back, you'll see believe um, over there. All of those words, faith, faithful, trustworthy, believe, they actually all come from the same root word. And the root word is where we get the word faith from. It's faith. And and really what we need to catch hold of over here is when God's word says... um, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, same word, it's the same word that we get faith from, whoever believes in him. It's not talking about an academic belief, all right? It's talking about a practical engagement with what you believe. So I believe in bacteria and viruses, do you? All right, just quickly show of hands, who believes that there are such things as bacteria and viruses? Some of you are like, whoa, 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 whoa. Oh, this is, where's this one going to go? I, this is not a trick question. Just like, do you or uh, yes? Yes. Okay, right. This side, believe in them. Woo, you guys don't, right? You know what's really funny over here? You all believe in an academic uh, belief of viruses and um, bacteria. If you were a Chinese church or a Japanese church, I would say, how many of you believe in bacteria and viruses? And you'd all put your hands up, and I wouldn't be able to know who's speaking because all of you would have your mouths covered with masks, right? That's because they're fully engaging with what they believe. You believe in viruses, you believe in bacteria, but you don't have a problem sneezing into your hand and then shaking somebody's hand with the same hand, right? Right? And you know the reason why those peppermints in the restaurants have got plastic wrappers over them, hey? Yeah. Yeah, there's a reason for that. You see, when God's word talks about this, actually what he's saying is faithful, unbelief, faith, they all come from the same meaning that if you believe in this, there's action that's required. Action required and action, um, a life of action means you do believe in it. If there's no life of action, it means you don't believe in it. It's that simple. How do you know if you believe in Christ? Has there been action? Are you actively Are you being active in your faith or are you passive? If you're playing a passive role in your faith, it means that you don't really have faith. An active role means that I'm actually um, practicing my faith. So carry on. He says, uh, because he judged me faithful or 
he judged me worthy of having faith and fulfilling the call. Kind of like that. Good way to try to translate that. Appointing me to his service. Who appointed me? He appointed me. I didn't appoint myself. It's Christ who appointed me to this role. Although formerly, so before I met him at the intersection, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Insolent opponent, the NIV version says, I was a violent man. We'll talk about that just now. But I received mercy. Here's that second level over there. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief or anti-faith. I acted in, I acted in anti-faith, ignorantly in anti-faith. I wasn't practicing faith in Christ. I was being ignorant, and actually, I was the way I was behaving was anti-faith. So, what was Paul doing? Well, Paul was persecuting the church. He was looking for people who were moving from Judaism into Christianity. He was killing them, throwing them in jail. He's going, that's what I was doing with great zeal. But I was doing it in ignorance. I didn't know what I was doing was wrong. Do you remember the day you met Christ? Do you remember your lifestyle before that? Perhaps for you, you go, man. And when I think back on that, I just think of how Jesus saved me and how I was acting in ignorance and unbelief and and how my lifestyle just so dishonored him and it hurt people and hurt me. I remember maybe you were, um, you know, you were a violent person. Maybe you hurt people. Maybe you abused your employees. Maybe you abused relationships. Uh, maybe you, you really hurt people. Perhaps for you, you were even an, in an alcoholic or a drug addict or a murderer. You, you went to prison and served time for that even and, and came out from that. You remember who you were before. Paul goes, I'm so grateful this mercy that just flowed over me. Because I acted in unbelief, ignorance. It doesn't mean only ignorance and we're accountable for all of it. Whether we know it or whether we don't know it, we're all held accountable for the way that we live our lives. Verse 14, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. I love this picture. We've seen this before. When you watch the news and there's a flooding somewhere in the world, you watch a river burst its bank. And as it bursts its bank, it, it kind of flows out into the suburbs and some houses get washed away and there's mudslides and you see the destructive force of um, water as it bursts the banks. Paul's saying this river of mercy and grace from Christ burst its banks for me and it washed away everything that was ignorant, everything that had a root in unbelief, everything that was rooted in violence and persecution and instead it left the seedbed for what would become this appointment to grow out of it. It's not a destructive breaking of the banks, but it's a beautiful breaking of grace um, and mercy, these banks that broke open over my life. The saying, verse 15, Paul starts out the saying, there's five of them, trustworthy sayings that he speaks about in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy and Titus. This is the first one. He says, the saying is trustworthy or full of faith. All right? Same thing, trustworthy, full of faith. It is, you can trust this. You can, you, can, you can actively do something with this saying. And deserving of full acceptance, personally, you have to accept it or you don't. And here it is, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am, if you have the NIV, the worst. If you have the ESV, it says the foremost. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. There was a day in history when Jesus was born. It's, everybody knows it. You can take it back. There was a day. Bang. There was a day in history where Jesus came into the world. 
But there was also a day in your life, if you know Jesus, I want to remind you of this. There was a day when Christ Jesus came into your world. Remember that day? It could have been perhaps a camp, a youth camp that you were at. It could have been a, a, a church service, a sermon that you came to. It could have been uh, perhaps a colleague at work who explained the gospel to you for the first time. It could have been um, your parents. It could have been a child. But there was a day when Christ Jesus broke into your world. And for the first time, you realized he's come to save sinners. And you remembered. And this thought opened up to you, I'm probably the worst. You don't have to respond, but do you remember that day? Because it seems that the longer you follow Christ, the more at risk we are of becoming self-righteous. See, Paul lists all these sins, and I mean, when I'm reading those sins, I'm going, well, I'm glad I'm not that, and I'm glad I'm not that, and I'm guessing I'm not the only one. That we read those, oh, I didn't do that, I didn't do that, I didn't, and if we did do it, we're like, oh, I did do that, I thank you, Jesus, that you forgave me, and I didn't do that, and I didn't do that, and oh, thank you for your forgiveness there, and I didn't do that, and I didn't do that. What's interesting is Paul's thought goes back from reading that list. He doesn't look at it and go, well, I didn't do that. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't. He goes, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Let me look at that list again. I'm the worst. I'm the worst. But, next slice. I received mercy for this reason. I received mercy for this reason in the past. I was the worst of sinners. And I received this reason. Mercy for this reason, future tense as well, that in me as the foremost, the worst, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So for this reason that I was the worst of sinners, Christ showed me mercy. But also for all those who would ever believe, Christ chose me to become the pattern of how he shows mercy to people. That even if you are the worst of sinners, Christ's mercy is still big enough for you. So you sit here today and you go, Pastor, great, great message. I really appreciate it. This is my once in 10 year visit to church. If only you knew my life, you would know that not even Jesus could save me. You, you just need to know that me hanging on that rope, I've jumped off and hung onto that rope so many times that you need to know that I, if I jump again, it'll snap. I'll die. It'll be gone. I want you to know that what God's word is saying is this, is that there is no sin there is no life of sin that is too big for the mercy of God. Nothing. And he just wants to remind you of that. Matt, you, you don't understand. You know, I gave my life to Christ, grew up, man, I just slipped away. I've been so far away from church. I've made such bad decisions in my life. You just don't understand. You don't understand. If I had to come back to Jesus now, the rope would snap. So I'll just keep holding on until I just can't anymore. The question is, why? Why would you do that? Lean back into him and let him hold on to you. He says, man, I just want you to look ahead. I'm the pattern because I'm the very worst. Not only did I sin against my family, etc., etc., but I persecuted the church. I mean, what could be worse than that, Paul thinks? What could be worse? He's like, cut out. I'm the cut out pattern for every other person who comes to know Christ after that. And in case you think that you're like really good, let me remind you of what Paul says. He says, I just want you to know that I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. I'm a Jew of Jews. With regards to the law, faultless. I mean, there are not many people who can claim that. <laughs> I'm perfect. I was perfect. People who looked at me went, that guy's perfect. We want to be like him. But he goes, I was the worst of all sinners. Very worst. 
then he breaks out. It's almost as if he's writing with his pen. And after he, he goes, hey, Jesus saved me so that I would become an example to all others. Puts his pen down and raises his hands. He says to the king of all ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. You may think there are others, but he's the only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Sandwich closed. First thing we want to have a look at is this, that Jesus stood at this intersection. Christ Jesus stands at this intersection. He starts out with number one and he says, I give thanks to him who gives me strength. In verse 15, he says this, this saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. I want to show you something because there's a lot of like conversation that goes around this. There's a lot of, the, you kind of hear it, circles talking about this. It's that speculation thing that Paul's encouraging Timothy to do away with. And it's like, well, how can you worship Jesus? That wasn't his real name. I mean, Mary didn't say, Jesus, come here, because Jesus is English. You know that. And you know that Mary didn't speak English. Does everybody know that? All right. And uh, you do know that she wasn't European either. Did you know that? She was a Jewish lady. And so, you know, we got like, really? Yes. So where did we get that from? Well, I just want to tell you, this is where we got it from. Christ is English. The New Testament is written in Greek. Christ is English for a Greek word, Christos. Right? That's it. Christos is a translation of a Hebrew word, Messiah, Mashiach. We're English, Mashiach. Right? English, Christ, Greek, Christos. And so, yeah, we follow it back. Does that mean that when I call out Christ, Jesus is kind of sitting in heaven going, hey, Gabriel, who's he talking about? Who's that? Who's Christ? Don't you know I'm not Christ? You want me? I'm a Mashiach. That's who I am. He says, no, Jesus, you know what? <laughs> Omniscient God knows who you're talking about. The Old Testament says, he hears the size of your heart. What language is that? He hears the size of your heart and he hears the groans of your spirit. He hears it. Jesus, English word. From the Greek word, Jesus. From a Hebrew, translated from a Hebrew word, Yeshua. Which is where we get the English word Joshua, actually. But we didn't want to translate it all the way. Otherwise, everyone whose name's Joshua will be called Jesus. Europeans, we didn't like that too much. Unless you're Spanish, which in which case you like call your son Jesus. Everybody's called Jesus there. That's where it gets awkward. Jesus, I mean, like, oh, who's he talking about? Like him or him or him or him or him. Christ Jesus. Christ literally means the chosen one, the anointed one, anointed by God for a specific purpose. Jesus, Yeshua, literally means this. Salvation from God. That's, it literally means that. It means God's agent of salvation, the one who saves. Now, if you're exploring the claims of Christ, and you hear us in church talk about God saving, and you hear people saying, uh, for instance, you know, when God saved me, your thought might be like, from what? Were you drowning? Were you, you know, what was going on that Jesus saved you? When we use language like that in church, what we mean is there was a day where we became aware of our condition before God that was horrible, that was full of sin, that was uh, weak, that we were before him, and we could not do anything about that. And God revealed Jesus to us, and for the first time we realized that if we lean back into Jesus, that he would be the one to take up the slack in our lives, that he would forgive us of our sin, that what he did on the cross paid for our sin, and that would save us 
from a life of sin. So when we talk about being saved, that's what we mean. Meeting Jesus and handing over our lives to him. That's what God's word means when it says Jesus is the savior from God. Christ Jesus, God's anointed savior, the chosen savior. It wasn't just some random savior. It was Christ Jesus. It wasn't just a Jesus, a savior who came. There are many saviors. You try to save yourself all the time until you met Jesus. That's still what you're doing. You think you're the savior because as long as I can hold on long enough, I'll be okay. God goes, no, no, I have an anointed Savior. I have a chosen Savior, Christ Jesus. I don't just have an anointed someone. I have an anointed Savior, Christ Jesus. Do you remember that intersection, folks? Remember that time you met Christ Jesus, where Christ Jesus came into your world? But notice what it says, Christ Jesus came into the world. It doesn't say Christ Jesus was created to come into the world. Jesus is preexistent. He was never created. He always has been. And I want you to think about this. Can you, can you think about the heart that he came from? And can you think about the depths that we could go to as human beings? How low we can go. You read stories in the newspaper and online every single week about how bad humanity could be. How, how evil people could be. And the thing is, Jesus comes from this place of total perfection all the way down to the lowest that we can go. So that he can be God's anointed savior to save us. He was not created. He always was. He always was. John, John chapter 1 says it like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it goes on to say, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the Word. Jesus was with God in the beginning. Jesus is God in the beginning. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son comes, and He's born into humanity and he dies on a cross for humanity next one is that at that intersection we received more than what we could give this is incredible for me that god would choose to give us more than what we could give see what did i bring when you came to that intersection what was in your trolley well you push your trolley up to that intersection and you were like hey jesus and jesus went hello jack how's it going he said jesus i brought some stuff here Jesus goes, right, what did you bring? And you look into your trolley and you bring out a bag of weakness. Paul goes, you know what, I'm so glad that it's Christ who strengthens me. He acknowledges before he got there, he was weak. We bring out our bag of weakness. We're like, what do you think, Jesus? Weakness. Jesus goes, that's right, died for that one. You're like, well, I've got some more here. Blasphemy. I've got blasphemy here, Jesus. I speak ill against you and my lifestyle lives ill against you and my lifestyle shows that I think I'm God and not you. I live my life as if I'm God. I trust myself and I don't trust you. Jesus goes, Jack, that's fantastic. I want you to know I died for that. So we bring weakness. We bring blasphemy. We bring persecution. Let's admit it. There was a time where we mocked those who believed. There was a time where we mocked those who gave their lives to Christ. Oh, bunch of, you know, there's people that just drive me mad. They're just so weak. They need a crutch. We call Jesus a crutch. Can't believe these people, these happy clappers, they're a little bit out of their mind. And some of them are. But the way that we responded to that was blasphemous. The way we responded to that was persecution. We persecuted those people. What about insolence and violence? You know, this, the, Paul says, I brought these three things. I brought blasphemy. I brought um, 
uh, persecution. I brought this insolence and violence. The real meaning behind that is this. The, the word carries this meaning that you're violent, sadistically violent, inflicting pain on another so that in their pain, they would feel shame as well as pain. That's what that word means. It's not just you're violent to somebody, you slap them in the face. It's the way that I carry out my violence is to bring shame to them. Paul's like, this is who I was. I mean, I wasn't just violent, but I, I intended to bring shame on people who were following Christ. So Jesus is like, okay, have you got anything else? You're like, yep, I have. You bring out your bag of ignorance. You're like, look at this, Jesus. This is a good one. Ignorance. Jesus goes, you think that's great? You're like, yes, it's great. Uh, yeah, it is. Jesus is like, hmm. But I've got another one, Jesus. It's not just ignorance, it's also unbelief. Jesus goes, really? Anti of faith? The opposite of faith? You've got a bag of the opposite of faith? Jesus is looking in his bag. He's going, I've got a bag full of faith. You can see, we're going to sort that one out as well. And you go, Jesus, one more. I've got a bag. It was very difficult for me to separate this one, Jesus. It, you could separate it into different categories, Jesus, but actually it's a whole bag. So I just lumped it all together. You can separate it if you like. It's called sin. It's sin. I didn't know, like, because some of the stuff is, like, bad. I know it's, I hurt you. Some of the stuff is, like, oh, who cares? Some of the stuff in here is me trying to prove how good I am, but I, your word says I can't, but I kept on trying to do it, so I guess it was sin as well. But you, you, can, you can sort it all out. Jesus goes, okay. And then, and then he goes, like, do you want to give me a whole trolley? And some of us are like, uh-uh. Now, I'm going to keep this one if it's okay. I'm gonna keep, I'll keep this one over here. Some of us have gone, okay, Jesus. You came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the worst. And you just let it go. And then Jesus is like, come here, let me show you what's in my trolley. Let me show you what's in my trolley. And he, Paul unpacks what's in Jesus' trolley, strength. Thank God that Christ Jesus strengthens me. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There's an appointment. You appointed me to something. Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verses 8 through to 10, but specifically 10, says that before the world was created, yeah, before the world was created, God looked ahead and he knew that Jack would live. And God's going, I'm going to create a purpose for Jack. There are these, there's this divine destiny that I have for Jack. And I'm going to create that destiny, God shapes it, before you even were born. Then God shoots a cross, brings Jesus into the world, boom, Jesus dies on the cross. 2,000 years later, it's 2014. Jack's been born, he's 20 years old now, and, and Jack hears the gospel for the first time, maybe the sixth, maybe the tenth time. But at this time, it's like the intersection just happened. And at this time, Jack's eyes are open and he goes, man, Christ Jesus came into my world to save me because I feel like I'm the worst of all sinners and he can save me from that. And he responds and he gives his life over to Christ. He hands over the steering wheel. And God's like, now you see this thing? Before the world was created, I created this for you. Question. That's purpose and fulfillment. The question you have to answer is, apart from Christ, can I still experience what God has purposed for me? Can my life still have purpose? See, apart from Christ, he might still have a great house, have a great car, marry a beautiful wife, have fantastic children, have a great job, have a wonderful life. But has he experienced what God created him for? Because in Christ, you experience that. Outside of Christ, he's not going to experience that. So he's going to be running after meaning for the rest of his life. He's going to try to find something to satisfy only what God created for him. 
Man, you need Jesus to fulfill that. This appointment. William Barclay explains how Spartans would compete in the games. And I told you that in Ephesus there were these two stadiums. And one was the Roman stadium and one was a Greek stadium. And the Roman stadium is where they'd fight to the death. We all know about that. We watched a stadium yesterday. We watched our rugby team fight to the death. And now we have to choose another rugby team. And then there was the Greeks. And the Greeks, they would, for them it would be sport, like the Olympics. We've been watching that as well. And you would compete in the Olympics. And if you won, you got a little wreath around your head. Like the flowers around your head. The Spartans would walk in there and they'd compete. They competed not for that wreath around the head, but for something different. And the story is told of a Spartan wrestler who enters into the game and he's wrestling against the opponent and it's a tough, tough match. And somebody comes along to him and he says, why don't you just throw the game? And he goes, no, I keep going. He keeps going. Eventually the person comes back to him and says, I will give you a sizable sum of treasure if you just throw the game. Let the guy win. He says, no, he keeps on going. And eventually he wins. And he gets his little flower on his head. And the person comes back to him and says, for that? You competed for that? You turned down all this treasure for that? And the Spartan responds, he goes, no. I fought for the honor of going into battle in front of my king next time we go to battle. You see, the Spartans, when they competed in the games, the winner got the privilege of standing in front of the king when the king led the troops into battle. And if you know anything about the Spartans, the king was right in front when they went to battle. Because if he was a coward and pulled back, when he went back home, his wife would beat him. (laughs) That's what happened with the Spartans. Your wife would beat you and inflict facial damage. So when you went out into the city again, people would look at you and go, did you see his blue eye? (laughs) Mrs. smacked him last night. That's what would happen. The Spartans, they were like, we're going into battle. Yes, it's a good day to die. The king was like, none of you are going in front of me. I die before all of you. Are we clear? Are we clear here, guys? I die first. Not like the English kings. Remember the English kings? Braveheart on the horse. Tell them to go. They get hammered. Fire off the arrows. Sir, our men will die. Yes. Fire off the arrows. Okay, we're done. Not the Spartan kings. The Spartan kings are like, I die first. Are we clear? Oh, by the way, if you won, today you get the privilege of going in front of me. You can die before me today. Paul's going. I got this appointment. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and he appointed me to be his servant. With the same energy, with the same enthusiasm, Christ appointed me to be his servant. I might die. But Christ appointed me. I think we need a resurgence of that again in the church. Because what we've been told is this. You become a Christian, you're going to get rich. You become a Christian, you will be well. You become a Christian, you'll always have a good car. Become a Christian, your kids will go to great schools. Become a Christian, no one will ever get ill in your family. You become a Christian, everything will be easy for you. Always. Listen, we should have changed it the other way around and said, hey, you want to become a Christian? just want to give you an invite over here. You'll face persecution probably for the rest of your life. You will have hardships in this life. Some of you may get sick and some of you may die. Some of you may even go to other sides of the world where you're put to death for your faith. How many of you want to become Christians now? No, I'm I'm expecting an answer. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I think we need some resurgence of that again. Because we've watered down what it means to be a Christian. We have. 
Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I want you to know we didn't do anything for that intersection. Christ came and did it by himself. He is the one who did that. You didn't do it. I didn't do it. It's not because of anything that you did. It's all because of what he did. He's the one who saves us. At that intersection, we receive way more than what we could give. Way, way more. Listen to that scripture again. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. At this point, it becomes personal. Because it says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And there's a place where each one of us have to step back and go, of whom I am. You're either going to respond by going, I am the worst. Or you're going to respond today by going, as if I even need that. There are only two responses. You either respond when you see the greatness of what Jesus did for you. You either respond by saying, I needed that. Forget everybody else. This is about me. He came into my life. Today, I hear Jesus speaking to me. It's me and Jesus. Or you respond by saying, I don't need him. Do you know what the good news is even on that? He's still patient with you even although you respond like that. The bad news is I don't know how much longer. Just don't. Just make sure that when you let go, when you can't hold on any longer, and you're letting go, just make sure that you've repented of your sin and you're hooked into Jesus. Because if you let go and you've not done that, you're in deep, deep trouble. At this point, we realize that all comparison is just futile. There's no more pride anymore. There's no more competition. I'm not trying to be better than the next person. Question. Do we talk about our past enough? Do we talk about this with others? Do we ask, do we tell others um, about who we were before? Do we, do we respond to others and go, hey, I just want you to know Jesus came into my life. Man, I was, a, I was a scumbag before I came to know Jesus. I was rotten before I came to Jesus. Or do we, do we paint a picture that just says, you know, Jesus is really lucky that I came to know him. Because I, really, I was really a great person. I mean, I don't want to brag, but to be totally honest with you, I'm really a good person. And Jesus is actually quite fortunate to have me on his side. Because while we might not say that, often we live like that. Paul's reminding us, come back to that intersection and recognize that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom we are the worst. You see, we also become examples now of that intersection. Take a look at what Paul says. He says, as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Our life change becomes a pattern for people around us. And when somebody looks at your life and sees, hey, I remember who this guy was at school. I remember who this woman was at university. I remember what a player this guy was when we were in the army. I remember how this person used to swear and look at porn when we were 16 years old. But man, I just see such a change in their life. See, people need to see the change often before they'll believe it for themselves. People need that. Do you know that even when it comes to buying KFC burger, you need to see the advert on TV seven times. Did you know that? You need to see it seven times before your brain will even vaguely consider going to buy one. And even then, after seeing it seven times, you don't get up from the TV and go to KFC to buy it. And that's why they bombard us with adverts all the time. See, in the same way, we need to see that people's lives change, that this Jesus who we talk about he can actually change people's lives. We need to see that this Jesus who we talk about, that actually he's able to heal people. This faith that we talk about, it's actually grounded on something. 
But when I tell people that Jesus came to save sinners and in the next breath talk about what a great person I was before I met Jesus, that leaves people with a bit of confusion. They're like, uh, what do you mean here? Jesus came to save sinners. What are you doing following Jesus then? You're such a good person. Sometimes it's helpful for us to share the story that we have. Sometimes it's helpful for us to reflect back and remember who we were before we met Jesus. Let's wrap it up with some application. We look back on that intersection should lead us to some deep reflection as it did for Paul. That reflection should lead to a personal response. And, and today I'm asking you, how are you going to respond to that? If uh, you've committed your life to Christ, today should bring you to a place of, I thank God that he gives me strength and now to the king of all kings, now to the king of all ages, now to the one that is immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory now and forever. Amen. That's what your prayer should become today. You should remember who you were before you met Jesus. And if you met Jesus when you were really young, let me remind you of who you could have become if you didn't meet Jesus. I came to know Christ when I was 11. The greatest thing I'd ever done wrong up until that age, this is confession, the Bible says we should do this. The greatest thing I'd ever done wrong is I nicked a cigarette out of my grand's handbag. Kid, you know, did you guys know that? No. <laughs> my mom and dad that was I mean that was it tried to share it with a friend of mine I was the little boy who grew up in a Christian home he was like I'm not doing that I'm not doing drugs I was like it's not a drug it's a cigarette okay we didn't know what we were doing barely liked the thing and even after we lit it we didn't know what to do with it so I think we made a fire with the matches that was it that was the worst thing that I ever did up until that point you know what's quite sobering that I may as well have murdered somebody because sin is sin that's it. Do you know what is really sobering for me? Is who I could have become had I not met Jesus at that point. Because I know what's inside of me. Because I live with Matt. I live with him. And I know that there is nothing good in him. And I know who I could have become. I know what a man of rage I could have become. I know what an abusive person I could have become. But I know that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the worst. That's a good reminder for me. Today, maybe you are exploring Christ. This should lead you to personal response today, a response of Jesus. I, I want to follow you. Thankfulness is appropriate. The reflection that leads to worship is appropriate. A place where we come to the King of Kings, immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm going to pray and uh, give us a chance to respond. And I think a beautiful way to us, for us to finish out today is to finish off with this communion meal. Jesus said, every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And what we've been talking about today is remembering the day that Jesus showed up in our lives. This is a meal for those who have given their lives to Christ. You can remember the day when Jesus showed up in your life and you handed over all authority to him. That's, this is for you. Perhaps if you've never done that, today's the day where you do that. And you just say, God, I want, to, I want to turn away from trying to hang on by myself. I want to turn away from the sin in my own life. I want to ask you to forgive me. That's the prayer that you're going to pray. The Bible says if you pray that prayer, you move over from death to life, from darkness to light. You move over from being a slave to sin to being a slave to righteousness. You move from being a child of the devil to being a child of God. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And then I'm going to invite you to come. And we're going to close out right there. So I'm going to pray. 
And I'm going to ask you to respond as we pray this morning. Father, this morning as we come before you, we thank you for this cup that represents the blood of Christ. We thank you for this bread that represents your body, Jesus. Both uh, sacrificed for us so that we could have a relationship with you. You came into the world for sinners, had your body broken, your blood shed on the cross so that we could have a relationship with you. If you've been exploring Christ for some time, he, the good news is he's been patient with you and wants to pour mercy over your life. Today, would you respond? Would you respond and say, Jesus, would you forgive me? I'm bringing my trolley load of sin before you. Would you take it away? And instead, would you give me just a righteous life, good life, clean life? Would you forgive me of my sin? God, I'm asking you for forgiveness. Today, I put my trust in Jesus as a climber, as he's falling, puts his trust in his partner who's got him on the rope. I, I, I hang back into you, Jesus. Would you trust me today? Would you, I trust you. Would you save me today? Father, would you fill me with your spirit? For those of us who know Jesus, our response has to be, thank you, Jesus, for your kindness. Thank you for saving me. Thank you that you had a plan for me and there was a day where I met you on the road and there was a day where your life, your purpose intersected mine. So respond by worship.